Hello, hello, hello. I'm Chido. I'm Christine. And in today's podcast, we talk about the review of the show Black Girl Magic 2017, Rob and Black China, and in our minority spotlight slash topic combination, we've got Santilla Chingaipe, journalist, boss lady, Ooh. and documentary filmmaker. And we're going to be talking about immigration. It's going to be amazing. So keep listening. I heard you've been on the scene. Yeah, I'm in the scene, guys. <laughs> yes. So tell us, what have you been up to? Oh well, so last week Friday, Black Girl Magic 2017 was held at the Art Center Melbourne. This was a show showcasing some black ladies, boss ladies doing their thing. You know, there's poetry, music, and mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, so like all around, like the vibes were really, really good. Like you walked in there, and you know everyone was really dressed, really cool. I was like, ah, I gotta work on my look. <laughs> I just gotta do something about this. Um, and yeah, and it was very cozy, isn't like you know we had that bit of floor seating, chairs, and yeah, it felt kind of family-ish. And um, who would I give shout-outs to? Well, Sister Zai for one, putting it all together, super amazing. She was a brilliant MC. My homegirl as. Astrid did a piece, you know, Pepsi represent, and um, I think highlight of my night was a poem by JJ. She runs Miss Millie's pop up poetry cafe, and her poem was just about the culture in which she grew up and how women, you know, were perceived like you know the the traditional thoughts that you know w- without a man you can't be anything, you know. Which culture? Um, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I should probably find out, but like, <laughs> uh, yeah. But it was. I, I thought it was very relevant to. Uh, well, I mean, our kind of culture, like you know, you must get married at a certain age, have babies, whatever. And she talked about like abuse that happened and how women were just sort of like, or still are expected to just put up with it. So yeah, I thought that was a really, really good, well done poem. Mm. Yeah. So it was performances by all. Black females, yeah, black and First Nations ladies, yeah, ah, yeah, mm-hmm. it was that. powerful. And then, and then I took my firecracker of a friend, and there was a hip hop dancehall R and B. I, I think no, 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 she's not R and B, but she's hip hop and dancehall. FMC, we'll call her FMC. She raps mm-hmm. and does radio. Yeah, so she turned up the venue like there was a dance party at the end you know oh, really? yeah and so my firecracker of a friend just slid up the dance floor and i was like yeah i know that girl <laughs> thank <Really>? you <laughs> girl who <laughs> what i'm not telling i yeah my friend remember i told you i was taking a friend you didn't tell me that she rapped no no my friend my friend dances oh. like she's a good dancer but then the lady queen g, queen g. yeah was rapping and yeah everyone was like Ooh. Mm. Was it like pop locking? Yeah, yeah. Okay. People getting into it. It was just like, oh, we're like, oh, it's too short. You know, we need to keep going. All right. Yeah. And so I thought it was a very empowering night, and I'm glad I got to share it with someone. Got to meet a few people, and then afterwards they had an after party or gathering. I don't know. Maybe it turned into a party. Maybe it was a gathering. I don't know. 
All right, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, regrettably, I couldn't go, but definitely we'll be looking out for the next event. Yeah, and it was at the down. Art Center, so mm. that's pretty cool. Fancy schmans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, on to less positive news. Um, although kind of interesting from my perspective as someone who does follow the Kardashians intermittently. So uh, some people might have already <laughs> heard about <laughs> about uh, Rob Kardashian blowing up the internet uh, when he posted on Instagram some not-so-nice pictures of Black China. Some people said that they were nude pictures of Black China, and he went on a rant, basically just slamming her, saying, this is not what love is. You know, she's cheated on me with 20 dudes. How could she do this, etc., etc.? Chido, were you surprised at all nope. by this? <laughs> I told I was... you from the beginning. Okay. I was surprised because, like, I do think that, okay, let's back up a little bit. I do think that she originally got with Rob just to get back at Tyga for, you know, the whole Kylie situation. But I think she started liking him. And trying to see where it would go. Which is why she cheated on him. No, but, okay, so here's why she cheated on him. If you watched the show Rob in China. Which I did not. (laughs) Then you'll know that Rob is such a mummy's boy. He cannot make a decision without consulting his mom. It's very frustrating. And Mm. China was really trying to, like, bring him up, you know, help him lose some weight, get healthy again, not be so depressed, have a positive body image. And then at some point, you just get tired of it. And you're just like, look, if you're not going to get yourself together, and if you're going to always go off and cry to mommy about everything, then I'm just going to do me. So I think that's what happened. <laughs> but that's still not like <laughs> love, uh, monogamous love, which it, uh, he and she were trying to portray in the show. I think it started out that way, and then I think she just got tired of him. Yeah, because from the beginning, it was all a plot. <laughs> I don't think it was... People making it seem like she just went in to get money and get out. Like a bank heist. Isn't that what happened no, at the end? No, She came out with a so. baby. And she came out with a baby. Fame. And I think... No, she was already famous before more Rob. famous. I don't think it's like getting with Rob has done that much more She for had her. a show for her. <laughs> but like that wasn't like a super popular show anyway. Uh. Um, but... I still like to think that she was trying to do something like a proper relationship with him, but he's just like, like I would break up with him. Anyways, you keep thinking what you think. I'm saying my opinion, and so is Wendy. <laughs> so just saying, yeah. Uh, I like what uh, Snoop Dogg said about it, though. He was funny. He said that um, Rob needs to just like basically. I'm paraphrasing. He said Rob just needs to like keep quiet, and he said something like. She saw a sucker and he got licked. <laughs> oh, gosh. That was hilarious. Dropping knowledge. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, anyway. How much time do we have? Yeah, well, we're done now. So up next, we have our minority spotlight and topic combo with Santilla Chingaipe. So whoop, whoop. stick around.
Today in our Minority Spotlight and Topic Combo, we are fortunate to have Santilla Chingaipe as our guest. Yay! Yay. <laughs> so Santilla is a Zambian-born, award-winning journalist and documentary filmmaker. She spent seven years working for SBS World News. She yeah. reports extensively on Australia's diverse African community and recently presented a one-off documentary for SBS, Date My Race, mm-hmm. which aired in February. And it was good. So now Scintilla is currently directing and producing a documentary about the complexities of Australia's South Sudanese community and also she is super cool. So, hey Scintilla. Hey, <laughs> what an intro. Yeah, <laughs> we like the lengthy intros here. <laughs> yeah, so I guess we'll get right into it. Um, I was just wondering, when did you get your first big break into journalism? I guess my first big break was probably when I walked through SBS as a work experience kid. I was at uni at the time. I, so I used to study biomedicine and so I'd switch degrees. And, um, you know, being a child of African parents, you know, they have these these ideas of what, your, you know, your parents have ideas of what they want you to be. Mm-hmm. And top of the <laughs> a lawyer or a doctor or, or an accountant. Or, or yeah. accountant. So my, my one, thanks to my mom, was to be a doctor. And I was good at my sciences and all that sort of stuff. But I knew ever since I was a kid, since I was four, that I wanted to be a journalist. But my mum was like, oh, you know, like, you know, it's probably best that you go and do um, medicine. And so that's how I started doing biomed. But while I was at uni at the time studying at RMIT, I really got into like community radio and community TV and writing for street magazines. And it was just like one of those things I was like, oh, this is what I really want to do with my life. So I had to talk to my parents and I just said, look, I can't do this. (laughs) I want to do this. And I had a lot to prove. And so I sort of thought if I am going to change my degree, I should at least get some work experience with the kind of organization that I want to work with eventually. And at the top of my list was the ABC and SBS. And when I was in second semester of my first year in my new degree, I would spend my lunch breaks, every break that I had, calling, emailing the ABC and SBS, and I would walk to Fed Square because I used to, I was, I was studying at the city campus on Swanston Street, and I'd walk down to Fed Square, and I'd be like, you know, do you have work experience? And they'd say to me, we don't offer work experience for first year students. You have to be in your final year, and blah blah blah, and you have to get cross credit. And I was like, oh man, I can't wait that long because I have a lot to prove. There's a lot riding on this <laughs> for mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. Um, but thankfully, because I persisted, six months later, I went there again and this guy that happened to be sitting at reception, just filling in for someone on their lunch break, ends up giving me the email address of my of my editor at the time. And I went back, I emailed him. He never responded. I emailed him again. Um, he was like, okay, can you send me like your you know resume and all that sort of stuff? And I sent that to him and then he never responded. And then four weeks later, he gives me a call and he's like, are you able to come in for for a day next week and I was like yeah you know happy to come in never mind if I even had a class that day if it clashed I'm like you know this is an opportunity I'm not going to miss it so I went in it was only supposed to be for a day and I absorbed everything like crazy like I was just one of those annoyingly overachieving work experience kids that finish everything ask questions just (laughs) (laughs) just just, I was like I'm going to make the most of this opportunity and then that day turned into a week and then a week turned into a month 
And at the time, they, you know, when you're doing work experience or interning, there's only a certain amount of time that they can you can do that because that's how long insurance covers you for it. Um, and also, I think it's just not legal to um, to go beyond that period. And so I was like, oh, man, this is going to be like the last day I come in so far. It's been great and blah, blah, blah. And um, in my shift, my boss pulls me aside at the time and he's like, look, we've been thinking, you know, you've done a really great job and we want to keep you um, as a casual. Wow. Um, yeah. And so I was I was I worked as a casual up until I graduated. So I would go to uni and then I would <laughs> I would also go to work. So I did a lot of night shift when I was at uni. So I did a lot of, you know, 5 p.m. until 1 a.m. I did a lot of weekend shifts. I did a lot of traveling during that time. I remember one week going to cover the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Perth and, like, you know, interviewing all these ward leaders and blah, 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 and just, like, having the time of my life and then being back at class Monday morning the following oh, week. It was so be- strange. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that would be really weird. It's yeah. like, what did you do this weekend? Oh, no, just hobnobbing <laughs> exactly. with the world's you know, just, uh, leaders. Just how it was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I drew a couple of leaders about some serious issues and, you know. But, yeah, that was that was pretty much it. That was kind of my break, if that – yeah, long that story. That is so but. amazing. No, I, I love that. I love that you shared that story. And just what is really coming through to me is that persistence is key. Yeah, and I, I think if there's any advice I could ever give anyone is really seek out people that can mentor you and that can really guide you in whatever your chosen path is. Um, and to also pay that forward when you get opportunities too. I mean, mm. one of the things that I do love doing is I, I love mentoring um, young people, especially young people from particularly African backgrounds, but I also mentor young kids from all backgrounds and trying to find opportunities to get them some training to get them because it is a hard industry to crack and to get into and to find the opportunities. But I also think that, you know, nothing's impossible. Now, in your journey to get to where you are now as a quite a successful journalist, did you ever feel like you had to play down your Africanness at all? Because, you know, let's be honest, Australia is a predominantly white country and um, most of our workplaces are predominantly white. So did you ever have any hesitation or um, just feel like, you know what, I need to blend in a little bit more to to get my foot in the door? Or have you always just been yourself? Um, No, actually. I think I've been quite fortunate in that I've always worked with people that, you know, accept me as I am. Um, I've never had to change anything about um, my identity or um, hide my identity or downplay my identity, if anything. It's a thing that I'm most proud of. And it always comes through in my work anyway. So I'm, I'm fortunate that I've just always had an opportunity to just be myself in that sense. And um, that's been appreciated and mm. and valued for, for what it is. And I assume it's less work than having to put on a facade every day <laughs> yeah. and pretend to yeah, be something you're not. Think, yeah, and I, I think also, I mean, part of the reason why I picked the public broadcast is for many, for many reasons. I mean, I, I wanted to start working as a public broadcaster because one, having grown up, as, as a migrant kid and constantly traveling and all that sort of stuff, the world is kind of, um, I live in the world, if that makes any sense. And so I wanted to work for organizations that did a lot of work that wasn't just focused on Australia or Australian issues. And then I also wanted to work for organizations that had a very uh, diverse mix of people from different walks of life. And SBS was really top of my list. Like it was, like I said, I had SBS and the ABC, but SBS was definitely the top of my list for that very reason, because I felt like it was the one place where I could actually be myself 
and I could do the stories that I wanted to do. It was like working with the United Nations. I mean, it was a dream. And I'm, and I'm grateful because that kind of set the foundation for me to be more comfortable in my identity and who I am, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think the pressure would have been more had I, had I gone to work for a commercial broadcaster, for example. I think it would have been very different. I think I, w- I, I probably would have had to have conformed. But because now I've spent so long being myself, it's mm-hmm. very difficult for me to be anything else. So even if someone's going to get me for a job, they know what they're getting. Yeah. yeah. You already have your yeah. brand established. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. I've never considered it as a brand, but you know, <laughs> if you're going to call it that, then okay. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. So obviously you're very busy like in well journalism world, but as well, you're a documentary filmmaker. Could you tell us a bit about what that's about? So I've essentially moved very much into filmmaking. And not just documentary, but also um, scripted narrative. So the long-term plan is to direct and produce feature films and television series because one of the things that I – I mean, I, I love journalism and I'll always be a journalist and I think I'll always put out work in that sort of context. But what I like about filmmaking and the screen industry, um, I was thinking a lot about representation, representation of of migrants especially and of, uh, of black Africans in, in Australia and how to – tell some of those stories and, and narratives are very important and I wanted mm-hmm. to be part of that part of that shift of being in the screen industry behind the scenes and making some of the decisions that dictate what you see on your know, television, what you see at the movie theatre and being part of that process. And that's kind of that was a decision that drove me to transition my career now into also filmmaking. Yeah, didn't I tell you she's super cool? <laughs> um, so before we head into our topic, if you want to find out more about Centella and what she's up to, you can find her on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or go to centillachingaipe.com. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, by 2015, no, oh, 2015. <laughs> <laughs> By 2050, it's estimated that approximately one-third of Australia's population could be born overseas. So that's quite a significant proportion of Australia. And it looks like migration is on the increase. But also, at the same time, it seems like there is a little bit of an anti-immigrant sentiment and tightening of borders in countries like the US. We saw Donald Trump with his, uh, in quotes, Muslim ban. The UK... Uh, leaving the European Union. And even here in Australia, we've recently had some changes to citizenship requirements, um, such as increasing the required English language skill level and taking a test based on Australian values, whatever that means. Um, (laughs) And I've personally been affected by some of these changes, and I'm quite upset about it. But Scintilla, just curious to hear from you, your thoughts on these changes on citizenship requirements and whether immigrants have a right to be upset about this, since after all, Australia, this is not my home country. So do I really have license to be upset about the government changing their requirements? That's a very interesting question to ask. Um, I'm going to put my journalist hat on and Mm -hmm. I, you know, I guess, I mean, you, you mentioned in the intro that these proposed changes to citizenship laws, at the moment they haven't yet gone through federal parliament. So until they pass the Senate, and it's not looking like it's likely because the crossbenchers are concerned by the English language test, the weight on the citizenship uh, requirement, that four-year waiting period. And I think they're also concerned about the immigration minister being given more discretional powers. And so, you know, Labor and the Greens have said that they're going to oppose it. And if the crossbenchers also express concern, it might not go forward or it will with some amendments to it. 
um, I've certainly spoke to a lot of people that have been impacted by the decision that was made on the 20th of April, I think it was, Yeah. Um, where that halt on the citizenship was placed because it's still currently in place. But also people that have been affected by the 457 visa changes. I've spoken yeah. to people that have been yep. affected by that. I spoke to a young girl who was studying journalism and I think journalism was removed on the on the skilled migration list for the 457. So even if she got a job as a journalist, she's French, even if she got a job as a journalist, she wouldn't be able to um, – she wouldn't be able to be employed because, you know, there's no 457 visa allocated to that particular field and so many other people that, that have been impacted by it. And it's, and as you said, you know, it's, it's certainly something that's happening the world over. A lot of the times when these sorts of issues come up and migrants uh, somehow, you know, I was doing an interview last week with someone and they, they described them as attacks on migrants. Um, and so if, if you see these things coming up and you, you see how, um, this idea where politicians use language that is exclusive to certain groups of people and policies that are being implemented that are exclusive as well. Um, I mean, something like the English language test really puts out a lot of people that would not come from English-speaking countries. And, you know, many people could argue that the, the success of Australia is because of migration, is because of migrants coming in and, and helping to build this country to where it is. And if that is only left to people from certain countries that speak English. It, it's it's a bit of a shame because you know we are multicultural. There are people here from everywhere, and English should not be the determinant of whether or not someone should be able to come in and be able to contribute to Australia. So that is certainly very concerning. The idea that English is this thing, this idea of so-called Australian values that still have yet to be articulated. <laughs> right. Because a lot of the things. That are being brought up in that conversation around so-called Australian values are things that are already within the law. So this idea that migrants will not uphold or respect the law is, I kind of question that because, you know, I mean, I think I heard conversations around, you know, when you when you come here, you should be able to realise that domestic violence is not right and that's an Australian value. And I'm like, well, it's actually also illegal. Like you can actually be penalised. Things like FGM, for example, are illegal. Um, so even if someone came here and tried to do that, there are ways within the law that that's already been dealt with. The thing is, a lot of this stuff is always because it's politically expedient, right? So when you can create an atmosphere of something that people should be scared of or whatever, unfortunately, it's a very tried and tested tool in politics that is going to get people to vote. Mm -hmm. So on just the basis of politics, it is just, it is a political tactic. And a lot of the language that's used these days is very much, um, very subtle. It's, so it's, it's, it's what's known as dog whistling. So they'll say things that come across as fair and, and not racist or not whatever, but in actual fact they are, or they are discriminatory to some extent. Could you give like an example um, oh, here in Victoria, the Apex gang, you know, Apex is not real. It has never been real. It was made up of, of kids from all backgrounds. Yet the way that was covered was that it was black African kids that made up this group. And Apex then became synonymous with black kids in Victoria. So if you see someone that's black, it became, that's the Apex gang. That's the Apex mm. gang. The politicians then started using things like, We've seen the apex gang. So instead of people saying black African kids, so, because that would be problematic. Because if you if you as a politician said black African kids, you know that people are going to be like, 
excuse me? Hold up. Are you actually being discriminatory now? Are you being like singling out? But when you say Apex Gang, everyone knows who you're talking about, right? Yeah. So that's dog whistling. And there's a lot of that that goes on. And even in just how things are reported, you will see that people from migrant backgrounds, uh, indigenous backgrounds will have their race or their religion mentioned mm-hmm. in a criminal story. But you'll never get that if someone's of an Anglo-Celtic background. It doesn't happen. My fascination, this is what my stories always look at, is trying to remind us all that we are all human beings first and foremost, you know. And some of us have been socialised differently to others, but that doesn't make it any less or any better. It's just our lived experiences are different based on where we were born and, and all of that sort of stuff. But that doesn't make those groups of people any less, you know, able to enjoy the, the same benefits that we get to enjoy in a democratic society. Yeah. And so on that, like another commonly cited fear about immigration we hear about is that migrants are stealing jobs. So I know I guess I'll start with you, Christine, but does immigration actually hinder economic development? No. No. Uh, <laughs> she's like, long story short, no. Long story short, no. Yeah, no. Um, I was listening to a podcast, yes. um, the Free Economics podcast. And so they were talking about, you know, numerous economists have, have looked at this and they've all pretty much found that uh, migration is good, both for the country that is accepting the migrants, as well as it is for the country that is having people leave for various reasons, but one of them being that they found that migrant workers actually complement the workers in the host nation by making them more productive and also, you know, contributing diverse ideas and basically increasing the productivity of the country. And then also on the flip side, the, the other country that loses people, their wages of those people actually go up because labor decreases there. So I think it's a win-win for everyone, but this is a commonly cited fear. I don't know about what you think, Centilla. What do you think about that? I, I think you're right. I think you just you just hit it on the head. I've done so many stories with so many studies that have reinforced the contribution that the economic contribution that migrants make. I think the Australian Human Rights Commission recently did a report that looked into that. But you don't even have to look at reports. I mean, you just have to look at a country like Australia. It's built on migration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So already that is <laughs> that is your evidence. The stealing jobs is also another interesting narrative because it creates an element of, of again, demonizing groups of people because it's simply not true. If you actually look at some of the statistics, a lot of migrants really contribute. A lot of them start businesses, successful businesses, so they end up creating more jobs. They end up contributing to the economy in ways that we sometimes don't include as part of the conversation. Yeah, it's almost like a, a catch-22. It's <laughs> like as a migrant, you come, you have a job, you're accused of stealing a job. If you don't have a job, you're accused of being a burden on the yeah, exactly. social welfare yeah, exactly. system. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You can't win. You can't win. Oh, you know, the, you know the, you're on the dole, you're the dole bludger or something. Like, it's just... You really can't win. You're right. I mean, it is it is that situation of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. I mean, from what I researched, it was amazing for me to just read this fact that Africans' remittance outweigh Western aid. So this was on BBC um, News. And they said in 2010, African diaspora remitted uh, $51.8 billion to the continent compared to the World Bank figures of aid to Africa being forty three billion dollars. And I just thought that was amazing because like other people like in that free economics podcast have cited mm-hmm. migration as being an anti poverty program. So 
Yeah, it's it's quite interesting that, that like I was surprised to think of it as an anti-poverty program. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. if only more people knew that that's kind of how it like yeah. helps people. Yeah. So in the global context, it's yeah. it's really good. Like because we do want all the countries to eventually like you know yeah. not be in poverty. Then maybe it, you won't get so many migrants exactly. <laughs> you know, in exactly. the first place. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that remittances is is huge because it's also like personal transfers. It's not like one government giving aid to another government yeah, and then like, who knows what happens helping, to the money. It's about helping families and communities. Yeah. And even just down to like the very basic level, like when I think about migration, it seems kind of like a shitty thing to limit someone's um potential for success just based on where they were born. Like the birth lottery. People did not yeah, it's yeah. a birth lottery. Like People who are born in, in rich nations are very lucky. But uh, on the flip side, people who are born in poorer nations, that's just kind of like the lot you were given. So it, to me, like just like from a moral perspective, it's like, I don't, I just feel like you, you can't be entitled just based on being lucky on, you know, where you were born. No, exactly. And this, and this world is for everyone. I mean, you know, the reason why we're born is to, you know, be able to share and, and enjoy this world. It's not just for some people. And it's unfair that it does, that that's what ends up happening, where only certain people get to really realize their opportunities have an equal, fair life, whereas other people get to miss out, like you say, because of where they were born or some of the circumstances under which they were born, which is very unfortunate that, that we're still there. We're, we're not necessarily moving anywhere closer to ensuring that every person that enters this world has an equal opportunity to the best that life has to offer yeah well on that note i suppose we'd like to thank you again for being on the show and for the work you're doing to um you know show the other side of the story the much needed told from um, the perspective of those people yes yeah the truth of yeah the truth of the story yeah no pleasure thank you so much Well, that's it for today's show. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Continue to send in your messages to sassyinoz.sos at gmail.com. Also, make sure to hit the subscribe button in iTunes and please leave us a five-star rating. Thanks for listening and until next time, bye. bye.